Here we go. Pastor James says this. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into, a, into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are, not, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of whom to whom you belong? If you really keep the... If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, your sin, uh, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Verse 10, we're going to verse 17, just a few more. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Listen to this, verse 13. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Somebody say amen. Okay, so we are in a series. This is week three of a series that I've entitled, what did I call it? The Christian Dilemma. You guys, no fair. It's called The Christian Dilemma, and where what we're doing is each week we're taking one of modern culture's objections to the Christian faith, and we're talking about it. And so week one was exclusivity. How can we claim to be the only one that has the truth? Last week we talked about literalism, which was the idea of isn't the Bible a historically unreliable and repressive. And this week we're going to a different place, but I just want to warn you that this series is a little bit brainy. I feel like I have a few different modes. I, I like to be funny. I like to be a storyteller. Um, I'm not worrying about any of that so much in this series. This series is not about motivating, even though I'm happy if you're motivated. It's not about inspiring. Uh, although I'm happy if you're inspired, it's about teaching. I'm trying to teach you something. My mom told me last week after my message, Message. She says, that might have been the smartest message I've ever heard. So just to warn you, it's a little bit brainy. So I hope you brought your thinking caps. I, I am more and more concerned as I grow in the faith and grow as a pastor. I feel like the onslaught of opposition that these young people that are raised up in the faith have to encounter now is absolutely excruciating. There's intellectual um, fighting always hurled at the Christian faith constantly. For someone to grow up in public school and public education uh, for college, I mean, they have an unbelievable amount of scrutiny pointed at them for believing what they believe. And so I think the time for us to just be dumb and happy as 
Christians is sort of over, at least in this time. I think it's a time for us to be uh, intelligent, to understand our faith, and even to be able to uh, communicate our faith in an effective way. So that's sort of what the series is about. So just taking an objective each week and talking about it. This week, the word is injustice. And the criticism is this, it's on your, it's on your paper. The Christian church has a long history of oppression. Christians, people acting in the name of Jesus Christ, have engaged in systemic, economic, and cultural oppression of various races, classes, and especially the poor. Are you familiar with the criticism? <laughs> Some of you in the room have, give, have offered me this criticism. So uh, this, is a, this is well-traveled for a, a lot of you. This, this type of uh, criticism is really historically associated with Karl Marx. Karl Marx is... It, one of the fathers of communism. He's certainly the, the poster child of communism, but you don't have to be a communist to feel the weight of this critique. Uh, Marxist, uh, a Marxist critique of Christianity might be summed up something like this. Christianity is the opium of the people. Have you heard that phrase before? That is, it disempowers the poor. It has been an enemy of the poor over the years, and therefore, we shouldn't believe its beliefs. Christianity's history of oppression of various races and classes, and especially the poor, means the beliefs of Christianity are not credible. We should not believe them. So what do we say to that? Well, first off, let me say what we do not say. Here's what we don't say. <laughs> what, a bunch of, what a bunch of hogwash, right? Christianity has never been anything but loving and kind. We have a perfect track record. We have always acted on the side of liberation and never... We don't say that. I regret to inform you if that's what you think. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. And even if you're not aware of that, everyone out on the streets that you're trying to reach is very aware of Christianity's mixed history. Christianity, unfortunately, is lumped in with all systems of faith to where when we look back at our past, there are things that we're proud of and there's the things that we're not proud of. And so just to let you know, there's no easy way out of this objection towards Christianity, right? Because it's true in a lot of ways. And so we answer this question from the corner because that's where it puts us. Like we're absolutely in the corner uh, on this criticism, but there are still things to be said. And in fact, I have three things that I would like to say if someone were to come to me with this objection, how can you be a Christian? Christians oppress the poor. They manipulate and just always rise to the top. They're all about power and they, uh, they downplay people who are down and out. Here's what I might say. Three things, and these are fill-ins if you're taking notes. Number one is this, the biblical God chooses the poor and the oppressed. The biblical God chooses the poor and the oppressed. James chapter two, which we just read, uh, what we see is Pastor James, he's coming and he's correcting uh, a group of believers because they have begun to discriminate against the poor. And by that, I mean that they treat the upper class better than they treat the lower class. And in verse five, James says something really amazing when he says this, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? This is what we like to call a rhetorical question. That means it has, a, it has an answer built in. 
right? Not like I'm honestly asking you a question. No, he's, he's asking it with a built-in answer. And in this particular case, the answer is yes. He said, his, his point is this, yes, God has chosen the poor to inherit the kingdom. So what in the world does that mean? So some people might think when they read that, they might think, well, maybe that means God only saves the poor. James doesn't think that. In fact, if you go just the previous chapter, James chapter one, he says this, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. So James here is very clear that there's both the rich and the poor in church. So it doesn't mean that. Other people might think, well, maybe this means that somehow it's maybe more holy to be poor. The Bible doesn't teach that either. There's a danger to riches, but it's not that people who are poor are more, more holy. The danger can be summarized. It's summarized well with Jesus in Luke chapter 12 when he says this. He refers to the pagans who, quote, run after money. See, that's where you get into danger. But nonetheless, it doesn't mean that either, but it does mean something. And so when James says, God chooses the poor, what do you think he's saying? Well, to me, when I, when I think that James says, God chooses the poor, he's just stating a simple historical fact, right? Uh, for example, Paul, when he's, ref- when he's talking to the Corinthian church, he says this, verse, uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty six. brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. So think of what you were when you came to the Christian faith. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So here, Paul just straight up says, hey, look, most of the early church was made of people from lower socioeconomic status. Most of the early church was poor. And here's something that you may or may not know. It has always been that way. And here's something you might not know again. It's still that way today. Uh, Did you know that today, 2019, the majority of Christians live in the Southern Hemisphere? So Latin America, uh, Africa, Asia, and they're poor. And that has always been the case. There has never been a generation of Christ followers where the majority of people following Christ are in low socioeconomic places. That's just the way that it's always been. But think about it. The story of Jesus thrives in back alleys and recovery meetings and in the ghetto and the tiny remote village and among the down and out and the and people at the edges, right? The, the gospel thrives in those settings. But, but then you put, but you put the message of Jesus into the mainstream and it, it loses its power. History would tell us that, right? And think about it like this. Underground churches thrive in countries with oppressive governments. They do great right? You're not allowed to be a Christian, but we're meeting under the bank. And if we get met, if they meet, they're going to kill us. Those churches explode with growth. But then you find your way to a, a nation where it's almost expected that you're a Christian. The church is in high danger of becoming bloated and dull and irrelevant. Europe is a good example of this. Right, and so, so why is that? Why does it seem like the gospel message thrives in the back alley, but suffers in the mainstream? 
I think the answer is this, and it's in your notes. The message of Jesus is especially compelling and empowering to the poor. The message of Jesus is especially compelling and empowering to the poor. First off, compelling. So think with me. Let's imagine that there's two people. And the first person, they're uh, a homeless man. The homeless man lives on Central, uh, is a drug addict, and gets by by breaking into people's homes. And then man number two, let's say he uh, lives in Tanawan, drives a BMW, makes a six-figure salary, and he is the CEO of a major fashion clothing company. And he has 200,000 Instagram followers. So now you have these two guys. Now imagine they both hear this message. You need God. And you're a slave to your own desires. And those are gonna be the death of you. Right? But you need the supernatural grace of God in your life. Let's say both hear that message. Well, I can imagine the homeless man, the homeless drug addict saying, yeah, you may be right. And I can imagine the CEO saying, how dare you, right? Do you know who I am? Or do you know how much I make? And by the way, I go to church plenty. We've talked about this before, but grace is, grace is good news for people who know they need it. And it's bad news for people who don't know they need it, right? Grace has, grace has this um, tendency to uh, reveal to you the places where you need a savior. That's an easy way to say it, I think. And the, so that's why the message of Jesus hits harder with people who know they need help than with people who don't know they need help. And so that's why the gospel is especially compelling to people in need. It just is. Secondly, it's especially empowering to people in need. Let me tell you a great irony in our church history. I, I find this funny. So in the 50s and the 60s, uh, there was a huge amount of clergy. So that's pastors and priests and bishops, a huge amount of clergy, both Protestant and Catholic. They, uh, in Latin America, they left the church. So they became secular, a huge amount in the 50s and the 60s. And the reason is the classic Marxist objection because Christianity disempowers the poor. They wanted to value the poor. They wanted to take care of the poor. They thought the church wasn't the right way to do that. So they left the church, became uh, secular people for the sake of the poor. Here's the great irony of that. In, uh, in the ensuing 50 years, there was this huge explosion of like Pentecostal Holy Ghost Christianity in Latin America amongst the poor. So much so that in some Latin American countries, it went from maybe 1% or 2% Protestant Christian to 40, which is huge, right? And so, so it's so ironic that the, that the clergy out of solidarity with the poor left the church right at the same time the poor all started going to church, right? And so there's these studies though, because of these little communities and how they played out that sociologists have done of these little villages and how, how they have fared now that they converted to Christianity, right? Some of, these, some of these little villages converted either mostly to Christianity or in some cases, completely over to Christianity. And the question is like, how, how did they do, right? How did the village do? What did the people find? Well, they found that Karl Marx was absolutely wrong, Right, that, that when you go to these villages that have been converted to Christianity, that the family lives and the economic lives were all greatly improved. 
right? So it wasn't that Christianity disempowers the poor. If anything, Christianity empowered the poor in that case, right? And so think about it like this. Let's say you have two opposing worldviews. So Christian worldview might go something like this. The creator of the universe loved you so much that he died for you and he put his spirit in you and now you're on a mission to bring healing to the world. Your life matters, right? So that is maybe the Christian worldview. And then there's the secular worldview. There's the Marxist worldview that essentially is this. You're here by accident. At best, you're a highly complex biological organism. Question, which of those two empowers the poor? Christian, of course, right? Because the Christian worldview not only gives people significance, but it gives them belonging and it gives us purpose, which is especially empowering to people who maybe don't have those things, right? If you're the CEO of a multi-million dollar company and you can say the gospel gives you purpose, they might say, I've got plenty, right? But you go to somebody who feels like their life doesn't matter, they're, they're forgotten by society, and you say, because of Jesus Christ, you have a home and your life matters, it's especially empowering Uh, to the poor. And so you might be thinking, uh, yeah, yeah, very very nice, very inspiring, but my issue is not with God, it's with Christians, right? (laughs) I don't think that God is this empowering to the poor. I think Christians are. I don't think God's the problem. I think Christians are. People in this room have told me almost exactly that. So I know that that's an issue. So number one, the uh, the biblical God chooses the poor and the oppressed. Number two, any legitimate Christian or Christian movement will inevitably do the same. The biblical God chooses the poor and the oppressed. Any legitimate Christian or Christian movement will inevitably do the same. Again, remember verse 17 that we read. Uh, Very familiar scripture. James says this, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. You guys familiar with that? Some people think that that's maybe, uh, would say that sounds like a contradiction with what Paul says in Romans and Galatians, where he says this, that we're saved by faith, not by works. Well, it's, it's not a contradiction and see if I can clear it up for you. I think John Calvin, he's the great theologian. I think he says it perfectly when he says this, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So what does he mean? He means that we're saved by, we're saved through faith, not by our good deeds. But if faith hangs around at a certain place long enough, his friends are inevitably bound to show up. And what are his friends? Good deeds, actions, right? And so, so if, if actions never show up, then it's reasonable to think that faith doesn't actually live there, right? I remember uh, my cousin, when we were younger, had an imaginary friend. Um, What was his name? Granga, Granga. So I don't know, we we made it up, but Granga was there, but he wasn't actually there. He was kind of, he was mostly imaginary. And so uh, I think it's a a similar um, truth that, that, if you never have, if there's never good deeds, you've been a Christian for 25 years and your actions, the way that you live your life hasn't changed at all, your faith is probably mostly imaginary, 
right, says uh, Pastor James, right? And, and here's what I missed for a really long time is I used to think, I used to think that this whole idea of faith without works is dead. You guys know those scriptures, very well-traveled scripture. I used to think that was just kind of in general, right? Faith, you know, in general, works in general. It's just kind of, uh, you know, I don't know. It was just good works as a whole. But if you read it in context, what's interesting is that you see that he's actually talking about a very particular and a very specific good work which is this, look, let's read it again, verse 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? James, I'm gonna need an example of that. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So you can see here that in context, the action that must accompany faith, if it, that faith is to be real, is what? Caring for the poor, right? And that understanding that about these scriptures that we use to cover a lot of different topics, he's talking specifically about these examples that he's giving. It puts us in a bit of a tricky situation when we read the prior verse, verse 13, when he says this, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. That's tough talk. It's also a play on words here, this word mercy that's translated into mercy twice in this verse. It's a Greek word and it has two different meanings biblically. Of course, mercy just has a way of being um, kindness and goodwill, right? Just being nice, that's what mercy means. But there's also a meaning in the New Testament when it uses the word mercy, it's talking in particular about caring for the physical needs of the poor. Uh, two examples of this. Uh, you guys familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan? Right, when, when the Good Samaritan goes and he sees the man on the side of the road, everything that he does for him, be it care, care for him, travel with him, even pay for his medical bills, are all summed up in this one phrase at the end of the parable, the one who did mercy. So it's interesting. So everything that the Good Samaritan did for this man is summed up with this phrase, mercy. Another example is when Jesus is walking and there's uh, the blind men. Remember what they say? They say, son of David, have mercy on us. They're not saying like, hey, Jesus, be nice to us. Just be nice. They're not saying that. They're saying like, heal me, right? I'm, I'm sick. So, so feeding the hungry, healing the sick, sheltering the homeless, that is the biblical definition oftentimes of this word mercy, And so then if you read it again, understanding that, uh, read it one more time, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. It's tough talk. Anyway, we're thinking, is he saying that only social workers go to heaven and nobody else? No. Again, it's a a sign of salvation. It's not a means of salvation. But the Bible is not unclear that those of us who claim Christ, if we don't care for those in need, our faith is probably imaginary, right? And so this is true on a personal level and it's also true on a communal level, right? So it's true for us as individuals, but it's also true for us as a community. That's why we at this church, we believe that us reaching out and caring for the city is not an optional thing that we choose to do, but it's foundational to how we serve our city in our service to Christ, 
right? It's not, a, it's not a choice thing if we want to be true to who God is. That's just, that's just part of our mandate as Christ followers, his body in the world. And so everything that we do, we believe that it's in service to following Christ. So love ABQ, right? It's a, the technical term is our benevolence mis- ministry. It's, it's the ministry through which we care for people. We give food. We take care of people. We go into people's communities. Go to their, we go up to their houses to pray with them, to give them food, to take care of whatever needs they have, to clean their yard. We just take care of people. And also like giving food is something that we don't just do periodically. That's 24 seven, 365 days a year for us at this church. We're always doing that. And there's other things that we do as part of how we're caring for people in need in that even, for example, sometimes we'll, we'll hear about someone who's going through a hard time. Maybe someone lost their job or maybe someone, someone was fired, laid off or fired, something like that. And let's say they don't have their, the money to pay for their utilities. Well, the church, when we hear about that, we call the utility company. And in certain circumstances, we work with the utility company to make payments to ensure that their electric doesn't get turned off or gets turned back on if it already has. Just to let you know, this week, your money went to put someone, turn someone's lights back on. And so if you give to this church, just know that's all you, right? That's not like something we can, it's not something that we make up. Like that is all you. And so just know that, connect that. That, that does good for me in my heart. Make this connection that when I'm giving to a ministry like this that cares for the poor, it's a very tangible and very real way that I'm caring for people. This week, you bought food for people who had no food. Right? This week, you took care of people who needed help. You did. Is that the only way you do that? No, I also believe that you have a personal responsibility to care for the people in need. But there is certainly that corporate piece. So it is a real big uh, piece. Number three, we're going fast. Number three, uh, number one, just review, the biblical God chooses the poor and the oppressed. Number two, any legitimate Christian or Christian movement will inevitably do the same Number three, sometimes the church gets it right and it's glorious. Sometimes the church gets it right and it's glorious, right? There's, there's, time, there's times when Christianity has gotten it horribly wrong. That's certainly true. But we've also got it right a lot, if you would allow me to be so bold. Uh, there's this book, The Rise of Christianity by uh, Rodney Stark. Uh, no relation to Iron Man, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, he's a secular historian. So he's not writing from a Christian perspective. He's a secular historian and he's studying, he's examining the rise of Christianity over the first three centuries. So the first century, the second century, the third century. And so there's, because the gospel just spread like wildfire during that time. And so they're able to study these communities and these little villages before and after they convert to Christianity. And there's three examples uh, of the gospel getting it right that I find from, from the first three centuries that I just wanted to share with you because I really like them. Because don't make it out it, to, to believe that like Christians only do the wrong, like that's not true at all. We have, we have made some mistakes, but we've really got it right multiple times too. Three examples for you from the first century. Number one is this, children. Uh, did you know in this time, especially in the first century, uh, that there was a... a, a ratio in these cities of male to female, the ratio was 140 males to 100 females, way more dudes, right? Why? Female infanticide. 
So that would be where, where there would, a little baby girl is born, they realize it's a girl, and they kill it, and they throw it away. Happened all the time. By the father. It was legal. Right? Because they, they wanted sons. And so, so they... So they didn't want to endure this cost of raising a girl for 18 or 15, however many years. And so they just killed them and they just threw them away. And it was legal. What do you think happened when Christianity spread to those cities? They shut that down. Of course they did, right? Every, everybody who follows Jesus and has an IQ of like seven or higher could tell you that that is antithetical to the teachings and message of Jesus. So thank God for Christians, right? I know there's a lot of criticism that's thrown at Christians all the time. I hear it as much as any of you, but thank God for Christians, really. If you look historically, the the church has been a force of good in so many different uh, places. And that's just one of them. Another one is women. If, if you don't know, in some of these pre-Christian societies, and I'm, I'm closing up here. When, when you were married, the women, if you were a woman, you were not allowed to have another lover. You couldn't, right? You had to be sexually pure. But your husband, well, he could have a mistress if he wanted, right? Huge double standard. And, and then even when, uh, if, if you're a woman and your husband dies and you're a young widow, get this, you had to be remarried within two years. It was the law. Why? Because women have really no purpose in even being alive if they're not married to a man. Caesar says, right? It's the law. And so Christianity spreads right into these villages and women flock to Christianity. Why? Because Christianity respects women. It always has, right? And because in these Christian communities, even in the first century, in these, in these Christian communities, you didn't have to get married if you didn't want to. You could just be a Christ follower, safe in a community. And, and they called both a husband and a wife to sexual purity and fidelity. The Christians did. Thank God for Christians. Lastly, the diseased. Um, in the first, second, and third centuries, this was before modern medicine right? They didn't have penicillin. So they had these huge outbreaks of disease that would just ravage these cities. And there are these two plagues that reports say that they killed a third of the population in some of these major cities. Huge plagues, the Antonine Plague, 165 AD, and the plague of Cyprian, which is 251 AD. And so they kill in some of these communities a third of the entire population. Rodney Stark, he's a historian, as I told you, our our boy. He says this about these plagues. The doctors, just try to imagine this. The doctors were quite incapable of treating the disease. Equally useless were prayers made in the temples. People were afraid to visit one another. As a result, they died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of the other, and half-dead creatures could be seen staggering about in the streets. For the catastrophe was so overwhelming that men became indifferent to every rule of religion or of law. Listen to this, unthinkable. Many pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, hoping thereby to avert the spread of contagion. 
As for the gods, it seemed to be the same thing when one saw the good and the bad dying indiscriminately. I don't know if you can imagine this, but here you have, imagine the fear was so intense of getting this disease that they stopped caring for the sick, even when the sick were their closest family. And so there were people that were just dying alone in houses because no one wanted to care for them because the fear of getting infected was so great. But, but something different was happening with the Christians. Uh, there's an eyewitness account of these plagues, a man by the name of Dionysius. And he says this, talking about the Christians during these plagues, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Listen, and with them departed this life serenely happy, died with them serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease and cheerfully accepting their pains. Listen to this. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. It's amazing. Meaning, meaning he went to, you went to care for someone who had the plague, it ends up killing you, and they live. So this, in the most horrific plague in history, the Christians stayed put, and they gave their lives for both the Christians and for the non-Christians. And in saving the life of their neighbor, they lost their own life. Now, where would they get an idea like that? Jesus, right? And, and as we prepare for communion, I just wanna tell you this, that, that if you wanna see the greatest act of caring for the poor in the history of the world, you don't have to look any farther than Jesus coming and pouring out his life for you, right? With, who without Jesus would be morally and spiritually bankrupt. You would have nothing, but still he treats you as a king. And when you, when you see that story and when you encounter that story and that becomes real to you, and when you allow that to really transform your heart, there's something that happens on the inside of you, right? Is there this desire grows for you to live like Jesus and for you to love other people like Jesus did. Here's my closing statement. God has always embraced and elevated the poor and any legitimate Christ follower will do the same. Have we always done that? Far from it. There is absolutely no excuse for the historical sins of those claiming to follow Jesus, none. But there is an opportunity for Christ followers to rebuild the reputation that we once had as radically loving, giving, sacrificial people people who joyfully enter into the world with open hands and open hearts. And I have a challenge for you this week. We'll talk about another topic as we close the series next week. Uh, but this, I, I have a challenge for you. I think it's really easy. I think you guys are all gonna be able to do it. But for some of you, it might be a bit of a stretch. The challenge is this. This week, ask God for an opportunity to help someone in need. Notice that. Notice how I phrase that on purpose. Don't just help someone need, do it, but ask God for the opportunity to help someone in need. And that's, of course, something that you could do during our communion uh, time here or something you could do in private, but that's the challenge. Ask God for an opportunity to help someone in need. So as they pass communion, just spend a minute uh, letting God speak into that and letting God speak into where your heart is and where it needs to grow.